Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Waters Wavelength podcast. My name is Anthony Malaki and I'm the U.S. editor of Waters. My normal co-host, James Rundle, he's not with me today. He's down attending the FIA Boca Conference in Boca Raton, Florida. And with the weather that we've had here in New York this week, I hate him very much. But he will be back on next week to discuss everything FIA Boca. And we've already put up some stories from down there about how the CFTC is bristling um, at European Commission lawmakers over Brexit. Um, What else? Uh, DTCC and its thoughts around blockchain, which leads me into our special guest that we have here today, Jesse Lund. He's the head of blockchain solutions uh, for IBM's financial services division. So he's going to join us in just a second and discuss beyond just you know what the IBM platform is. Really what we're going to get into is looking at uh, actual use cases f- uh, for finance and in the capital markets, uh, what uh, some of the lessons that he learned along the way, um, you know how these uh, how blockchain tools can help uh, in help utilities. So it's a wide ranging discussion, but I'll say it around distributed ledgers and blockchain. So that'll be in just a second. Right now, though, I guess the one thing to inform you all about is we have a couple of events coming up here at Waters. We have the North American Innovation Summit that will be held on April 17th here in New York City in Midtown. Uh, We'll put up all the information for that. But if you are an end user, so a bank, hedge fund, asset manager, uh, whatever have you there, broker, you uh, can attend for free. And if you are interested in sponsorship opportunities, feel free to reach out to me and I can direct you to the appropriate person. And then on May 16th in London, we have the Buy Side Technology European Summit. Again, end users are free to join. Um, And if you are interested in sponsoring for that one, again, feel free to reach out to me and I will direct you to the right person. We'll also put up all that information online. Uh, With all that out of the way, uh, next up, we're gonna have Jesse join us and he will talk about all things blockchain. All right, I am now joined by Jesse Lund, who heads uh, who's the head of blockchain solutions uh, for IBM's financial services group. Uh, Jesse, thanks for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. So, you know, I think our audience would be interested to hear um, about the blockchain platform that you have been working with, uh, specifically uh, for financial services and capital markets. Um, know that you've worked with uh, London Stock Exchange Group, uh, a few others, uh, Borsa Italia, or yeah, through Borsa Italia. But maybe to start off with, why don't you tell our listeners about the platform, how it came together, and why IBM decided to get into the you know distributed ledger uh, game? Right. Uh, big question. Well, uh, so the platform itself, I think you know the term platform might be an overused. Um, term in in just industry in general because it can mean a, a lot of things but um, but I think it characterizes IBM's um, investment into blockchain technology um, as really a, an emerging um, foundation for fundamentally changing the way businesses um, interact um, with each other and with clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it fundamentally transforms kind of the transactional landscape. And so it's a natural fit for a company like IBM that spent, you know, 100 years building and, you know, operating, um, you know, high-performance, high mission-critical transactional systems. So, at, you know, at a at basic fundamental level, that's what what we mean when we say uh, platform, but that involves a lot of things. It involves, you know, core distributed ledger um, 
uh, software technology. We've made some investments in Hyperledger as a, a, a community uh, process and a, a, and a governance um, framework. We've made some investments in Fabric, which is a, a distributed ledger technology um, that's under the Hyperledger umbrella. But we also have um, you know, interoperability with other um, distributed ledger technology um, uh, you know, software uh, components and um, systems that enable us to actually build solutions on top of that. So you kind of think of the DLT as the foundation. And I, I, there's someone in the industry that I, I would love to quote, but I don't know who said it, but just said that, you know, you'll know that um, blockchain has become absolutely mainstream when people stop talking about blockchain and they start talking about the solutions that are built on top of blockchain. Well, I think that that maybe leads into the next question. You know, there is a lot of, to me, the way that I see it is last year was very much about uh, theoretical uses for blockchain um, and that this year you're starting to see some some actual real solutions starting to roll out uh, using distributed ledgers. Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, real use cases that you've seen for blockchain in the capital markets? Yeah, I, I think... Um where where we've been concentrated, and I think the the industry you know tends to follow in general. There's there's some pretty obvious low hanging fruit um, from a use case perspective in in financial services in general. I think um, uh, you can look at it functionally, and, and functionally it's really about um, the clearing and settlement of transaction as as two distinct steps um, within you know almost any financial transaction. There's the kind of the intent. Um, to transfer value from one party to another or to transfer an asset and all of the checks, uh, integrity checks that need to go into that from all of the fiduciaries involved in that value chain. So things from KYC and, and anti-money laundering checks and sanctions list check, checking and all of those things, that happens kind of in that clearing phase, if you will. And then once you know the, the counterparties have agreed to a transaction, then the transaction needs to settle, right? Mm. So in the capital market space, you've got the exchange of, of securities and then you know the, the reciprocal payment for um, that, the, the transfer of ownership of that asset. And um, those things happen on, on separate networks today, right, with mm. a lot of intermediaries in between. And so it, where clearing and settlement is, is kind of the functionally the name of the game, really what it boils down to from, a, um, I think, from a design perspective is a shift in mindset to this notion of digital assets, right? And you've seen this, um, this ICO craze, right, which, you know, for better or for worse, the SEC has taken a lot of interest in that because they want to make sure that, you know, the proper controls are in place to protect, you know, consumers and, and businesses, and rightfully so. But really, when you boil it down, the mechanics of it is is, is these um, these entities are are creating um, tokens that represent uh, a claim on some real world asset or utility. And I think that's the name of the game because these these blockchain networks provided the tipping point where you don't have to have separate networks in order to manage um, you know assets in a digital form, uh, you know, in a, in a legal form that can be exchanged at extremely high velocity. So. The transfer of the value of an asset as a, a digital token can happen at the same time as the transfer of value, um, uh, uh, you know, of the payment for that um, that particular asset. You know, they can happen on the same network. They can happen in real time, and I think that's the profound impact that you know the proverbial 
paradigm shift that's going on today. So forgive me, if it, just so I, that I understand better. So does, in order for blockchain development to really kind of catch on and take hold, do you, so there, there kind of needs to be that cryptocurrency element attached to it that they don't necessarily, cryptocurrencies, if they fail, then blockchain fails it. Am I understanding what you're saying there, correct? Well, I mean, okay, so first of all, uh, cryptocurrency is kind of a loaded term. It mm. means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So, you know, we ha in, in the conversations that I'm in, the industry conversations, where it's, whether it's with, you know, you know, members of a congressional caucus or whether it's, you know, with clients, we, we've got to be clear on the definition of, of terms. But sure. I, I think what you're, what you're getting at is, um, you know, blockchain kind of started out as, an emerging technology that provides um, a, an intersection of some really important functions like distributed computing and distributed storage and the ability to have you know immutable ledgers and the ability to be able to track provenance and optimize um, supply chains and um, workflow um, you know optimization as well what you know I think what you're alluding to is what's missing there that was that was evident or, you know, um, apparent in the thing that started all of this, which was the Bitcoin phenomenon and that whole social experiment that's now turned into something of, of its own, mm -hmm. um, is the ability to store and transfer um, value. And so, while I wouldn't say blockchain has to have a cryptocurrency in, in order to succeed, I, you know, because I think those you know aforementioned functions are, are really valuable in you know an enterprise IT shop as they're building systems that interoperate with other systems with their clients and their peers and their competitors uh, for example um, but th it will always have an uphill climb um, competing against conventional technologies right mm -hmm. so you know distributed storage that's you know it blockchain does do that and it does it very well um, and it allows new participants to come in very easily and participate in that distributed storage network. But we also have, you know, databases that have been around for 20, 30 years that provide, you know, uh, replication at, you know, at with, with pretty good efficiency. So if that's the only value prop um, that is that is presented to CIOs who have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of investment in infrastructure and software and training and resources, I think it's going to be a hard sell. Yeah. But where it goes from you know, kind of incrementally innovative to, you know, transformationally innovative is, is when the value exchange between counterparties, they're not just exchanging data, they're actually exchanging value um, mm -hmm. with finality. That's where it becomes really, really powerful and really interesting. And I think the market is reflective of that. So if you look at, you know, where the investment is going from, a, a, you know, a venture capital standpoint where the money is being made currently, it's being made in that space where, um, the enterprise features um, that IBM has historically been really, really good at are starting to come together with the store and transfer of value that, that you know, things like Bitcoin offer, but to do so in a much more, you know, permission and controlled way that allows the regulators to be and do what they need to do. So for the sectors that, that you're seeing the, the, the best, because as you said, I think a lot of people are struggling right now with do these kind of platforms and the investment it would take, do they offer substantial improvements over what we have currently? And that's kind of a debate that you see in the industry, um, you know, at some exchanges at the DTCC and onward. But so for you, what are some of the spaces that, that are most ripe right now? So global payments, I know that you guys are big into um, why global payments and maybe what else do you see being ripe uh, for blockchain adoption? 
Yeah, so yes, global payments is, is definitely one. And, you know, I think it's one that, um, that, that actually has some, you know, some visible um, or kind of obvious benefits um, in both that, you know, the, 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 the incremental transformation of, you know, just sharing data better um, and rec- reconciling data better. And, and then the, the transformational, you know, paradigm shift of being able to actually transfer the value too. And, and uh, that, that's most apparent in, um, you know, cross-border payments that has really not undergone any fundamental, you know, changes in terms of investment in infrastructure in, you know, 50, 60 years. You could argue more than that, actually. Yeah. You know, it's just, it, it just hasn't. Um, but if you think about it, you know, a cross-border payment where, you know, um, an originator is sending a payment through their bank to some recipient somewhere else in the world um, who is, you know, receiving it from their bank. You've got the banks as intermediaries, and then you've got two currencies, and you've got to deal with VFX. And the way the banks have historically done that is through this, you know, complicated network of correspondent banking relationships where, um, you know, your bank may not actually talk to the bank of the person that you're sending to, but does talk to that bank indirectly through, you know, three other banks, right? And that's, that's what the SWIFT network is for, is to kind of provide that messaging and that routing. But the SWIFT network is disconnected from these correspondent bank accounts where these banks have relationships with each other. And the whole exercise is really just an exercise in um, coordinating book entries to different banking deposit systems, right, and, and accounting systems. And so, you know, like prime poster child, uh, you know, use case for distributed ledger, right, instead of uh, coordinating uh, entries and trying to synchronize them across multiple ledgers, why not just share one ledger? That, mm. That's the whole point. And then, you, again, you throw in the mix of now I can also settle in real time by the exchange of some digital asset that allows me to do the FX between the you know the originating currency and the and the recipient um, currency in real time at you know at some favorable rate. Now you're inter you're you're you know, you're eliminating a lot of intermediaries. So um, the the good news is the end user experiences a twofold gain in um, it, you know in time and in cost, right? And by way of our relationship with the banks, they like it too because you know basically we're just you know enhancing their their operating margins right their operational efficiency while at the same time making their customers happier because they get their money you know in real time instead of four days later sure and you know in in the financial system we're starting to see a a push of a desire toward utilities take for example uh kyc aml needs things like that do you think that blockchain and distributed ledgers will help in that push that that the utility model will become because We've seen a lot of failed utilities as well, like Project Coal and things like that. Do you think that the that this kind of technology will help in those endeavors toward industry utilities? I do, I do, and I, but I think we have a ways to go. I mean, I think um, this this notion of self sovereign uh, identity is really the key to this, right? So, to to know your customer is you know to know as much as you can about that customer, but, you know, for the sake of running your business, not for the sake of sharing that knowledge with any other entity that might need to know that same customer. And, of course, you know, we can relate to this as as consumers. You look at the credit bureaus that are out there, they're actually collecting data on you and I without our permission, Mm -hmm. right? And, And so, and they get breached, and all of a sudden, I'm at risk 
because some company that's collecting data on me that I um, didn't give them permission to collect, um, you know, screwed up, and now my data, sensitive data, is out in the open. And so I think the paradigm is that it's, it's, it's the attributes about me. It belongs to me, and I should be able to control that. That's the self-sovereign part of it. I do think in terms of managing identity, again, as a digital asset, it goes back to, you know, digital asset management, where, uh, you know, I can have these different relationships with these different organizations, my telco, my cell phone company, you know, my bank, the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? And each of them knows a little bit about me, but I'm the one that controls connecting all of those attributes. You can get a full picture of, of who I am. And the blockchain, I think, provides this place um, that is r- readily accessible, given my permission to access it, where you can put, you know, what we call the attestation of the accuracy of those attributes at each of those organizations in one place without creating this honeypot of information about me and everybody else that's ripe for, you know, for hacking and for attacking. So I do think there's a huge opportunity for that. And, and IBM, um, there's a, a colleague of mine at IBM who is, is working on that and making great strides. Um, but I think where, uh, where there's still some more maturity that needs to happen is in the discussion of who's going to build that trusted system. I think IBM's confident will be, will be there to, you know, to provide the underlying you know, technology and infrastructure and operational expertise. But who are we going to entrust to actually launch this system? Is it going to be the government? Is it going to be the banks? Is it going to be the telcos? Uh, is it going to be the military? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, and I think we're, we just have to sort that out first. Okay. As you've gone about this, as you've gone through proof of concept, and I'm going to touch back on what you were just talking about in just a minute, but as you've gone through these proof, proof of concepts and actual implementations, what are some of the lessons that have been learned along the way? What, what are maybe some of the things that you didn't anticipate that have popped up that you've had to adjust for as you've gone about uh, these projects? Yeah, for well, for me, um, you know, having only been at IBM for for about a year, but having spent um, a long time, almost two decades prior to that, at my former employer, Wells Wells Fargo, uh, which was um, where I you know got all of my experience in financial services. Um, you know, I think what what we didn't anticipate is the um, the resistance to optimization. Um, by way of the fear of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think what happens is, in some ways, blockchain offers the potential to greatly simplify operations and to make things more transparent and more visible. And I, I think, and that's good all across the board. I, I won't imply that you know any banks or organizations are trying to hide anything, but I think they've you know they've operational systems they work right and if it's work if it works don't break it is kind of the the philosophy and so it's scary to think about you know completely changing the you know the processing model of you know a process that um, not only has worked for the last 40 years but also touches like six or seven departments right because these big banks are you know these big companies they're like you know, in, independent companies that, that operate, you know, as a you know, kind of a loose federation under the same brand. I mean, that's how these big banks work. And so I think what we, at least what I have underestimated, is the, um, the time that it takes to get the decision makers comfortable that the change um, is good and that the technology is, um, you know, solid and red 
and and that's it. You know, I used to work for the CIO at um, at Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, these guys are betting their jobs on on something like this that works, and you know, they're not they're not you know dummies. Um, blockchain's only been around you know for for three or four years in its current incarnation. Bitcoin yeah. that started it all has only been around for nine years, right? So. Where's the mainframe that's you know been around for longer than I've been alive? Yeah. Um, so I think there's some trust that will inherently build over time, and that's really the lesson learned is um, we got to expect to invest in this a while longer until it really pays off and starts becoming you know truly mainstream. And I gotta imagine that you know as we look forward here that implementing blockchain solutions with other emerging technologies, whether around artificial intelligence or even existing platforms that, ex- that, that are already in there, as you talk about you know, mainframes, order management systems, whatever have you, what kind of evolutions, I guess, need to happen next? So, you know, as, as we look forward to over the next year, what, what do you kind of hope to see as far as blockchain's development and these discussions you know, as to who's going to be building systems, things like that? Yeah, well, for me, you know, one of the the tours that I had um, back in in, in the bank um, was running the uh, the security systems for the commercial bank and the the fraud um, detection systems, and I that's a big problem today, you know, especially in, in you know, and then in an increasingly you know interconnected you know networked and digital world, and so I think there's there's a lot of um, you know, reason for concern there, and then as you as you know, we've talked already, and I've advocated that you know the real benefit here uh, gets to the tipping point when you start adding real value, you know, like real money in digital form into these into these networks. Now the the stakes go up, you know, even even more. But I think what you have, you know, at the at the basic level with a blockchain is a a forever. Um, you know, history, historical, transactional uh, laws that is immutable, that if you think about AI and the power of cognitive computing and analytics, um, you have this, this record from which to go back to do all sorts of predictive analytics that I think will become more real-time. I think we've, we've been on that quest for a while. We want, you know, real-time predictive analytics where before the fraud happens, you know, the customer gets a text to their cell phone that, you know, something might be happening with your credit card or something like that. Um, I, I, I'm hopeful that that's where this will go, because at the end of the day, we're talking about enormous amounts of transactional data, but secured, but in a location where it can be much more easily mined and, you know, connected together where uh, in, inferences can be made and where you know, real patterns can be discovered. And that's, of course, you know, another major part of, of IBM's value prop. I mean, you know, you could say IBM's bet the company on, you know, cognitive and cloud and, and blockchain, among a few other things, with, you know, the, the, the mainframe itself, the Z, Z platform as being, you know, a, a mainstay that's, uh, that's been around forever and, and, and still going strong. And then uh, two more questions. But uh, first, I guess, on the speed of, of distributed ledgers, I think one of the challenges that some people say, you know, as far as the DTCC uh, CEO was speaking at FIA Boca just recently talking about, you know, they process something like 250 million trades, you know, and it's just a massive amount of data that's going through the DTCC. 
what needs to happen as far as the um, uh, capacity and the ability to handle huge amounts of data and process that in real time? Do you see that being anywhere on the horizon or are we still a ways off from, from large amounts of data moving through like that in real time? Yeah, well, I, I will never underestimate, you know, the, uh, um, the ingenuity of these, these, you know, software engineers. I can tell you that, that that's certainly a, um, a you know, a, a, a target on, on the roadmap. But I don't, you know, performance enhancements is not really something that I think anybody in the blockchain space yet has really put forth effort to solve. I think, you know, a thousand transactions per second is kind of the, the benchmark for any, you know, meaningful, um, you know, competitive uh, blockchain or distributed ledger technology today. But we haven't even tried to optimize that yet, you mm-hmm. know. And so I, I don't feel uh, worried that we'll be able to get to a million transactions per second someday. I, I, I just i am fully confident we will. We just haven't focused on it yet. We have where I've seen some incremental gains already. I mean, you see, Bitcoin came out and was kind of like, you know, the Atlas rocket that got us into orbit, but, you know, it's not the thing that's going to get us to, to Mars. Well, even just second generation, you know, blockchains that have come out have gone from, you know, whatever the nominal rate for Bitcoin is, you know, 30 or 20 transactions per second. We're already, you know, in the thousands of transactions per second on other, you know, production networks. So I think that will just continue to grow. Um, the, the Zurich uh, Research Labs, part of IBM, uh, did a, uh, a, a, a study recently on uh, coins and, and the ability to issue tokens as part of the Hyperledger Fabric effort. And, um, you know, they made some modifications uh, to, for test and learn purposes to the Hyperledger Fabric code that got, you know, us to like four or 5,000 transactions per second. And again, that was just a, a little research project. So once we get serious about this being mainstream and we need scalability and the, the, you know, the, the attention then focuses on how do we make it scale, I'm pretty confident these smart people are going to figure it out. Okay. And then the last thing I was wondering about is looking at the software engineers of the future that are going to want to be able to, they're going to be able to best um, work with blockchain solutions, with the distributed ledgers. What kind of skills do you think are going to be necessary? What what should uh, CIO CTOs hiring at banks today need to think about? And what maybe you know college kids, kids that are coming up that want to make sure that they have a diverse enough skill set. What do they kind of need to start thinking about now in order to be ready for those jobs of the future? Yeah, well, I tell my my do- my oldest daughter is is now in college, and I and I uh, I've thought about this, and I I tell her. Uh, Stay good at math. <laughs> you know, math is, is really important in, in all of this. And I think, you know, math has always been important. I, I went to, when I was in graduate school, I went, um, I, I was in class with uh, someone who whose undergraduate major was math. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. You know, I majored in, you know, finance. And he's like, yeah, but my dad told me that, um, that you major in math, it teaches you how to think, and then you go into graduate school and you learn how to apply that thought process to you know some domain of expertise. And I, I don't know why that stuck in my mind all these years, but it it seemed like you know uh, you know good good wisdom to share. And so math is just really important. I mean, this is all based on um, you know this is all based on cryptography uh, to some degree. I, I grew up you know as a database guy and and learned how to program and, and picking up another language was really really easy. But, you know, as I go back and look at the complexity of some of the underlying tech, the algorithms that are in these consensus models, 
it's uh, it's really serious stuff. Um, but it's so cool that it's being developed in this open source, you know, open environment. I think that's the thing that's changed for me in the last 20 years is, is you know, we always used to develop this as proprietary source code was, you know, this coveted thing that no one could touch. Mm-hmm. Now it's out in the open, and that's the way to do it because we're, we're talking about building critical systems that move real money and real assets. You've got to be able to go in and look at it, you know, to be confident with it. And so, you know, being able to look at the code, um, you know, computer programming languages are key, you know, logic, but, uh, but math, you know, stress the math with your kids is all I can <laughs> say. It's going to be really important. Very good. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for taking the time. This was uh, really informative. Yeah, thanks. A lot of fun. I appreciate it.